Okay, good morning. We have the privilege of studying Parshas Lech Lecha. Thank you for your flexibility. We had a bris this morning. That's why we're in here. Um, apropos, we had a bris this morning. Parshas Lech Lecha. So page 54 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. As always, we'll do our overview of the Parsha and then try to study uh, specific Sukkim uh, textually together. So our Parsha begins with the introduction to Avram. It actually begins somewhat abruptly. Yes, we know at the end of last week's Parsha, the genealogy and the fact that Avram's father began the journey towards Israel. We mentioned last week that at the end of last week's Parsha, it describes that he began the journey, but he never arrived. They left They only got as far as Hanan. In this week's Parsha, Avram too is challenged to go, but he makes it there you go. He makes it farther than, than uh, his father. But the introduction to Avram is somewhat abrupt. Avram seems like an adult. You have no idea his background. You have no idea how he arrived. The Rambam in Hilchos Avodos Kochavim fills us in in the story of Avram Avinu. Uncharacteristic of the Rambam. But the Rambam describes, usually the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah is a book of laws. Mishnah Torah. It's a repetition of the Torah. It's the encyclopedia, the halachic compendium of Torah, the code of Torah. And yet, he takes the liberty at length to describe Avram's journey, how Avram discovered God at a young age, how he discovered ethical monotheism, which we take for granted today, but if you live in a pagan society in which many deities are worshipped, the notion of seeing one God who is the source of all is radical, it's revolutionary. And yet Avram at a very young age discovered it and didn't only keep it to himself, but then stood in a soapbox and tried to influence as many people as he could. So our parsha begins, as I said, somewhat kind of abruptly in the middle of the story, which begs the question we're not going to deal with, but is worthy of thinking about. Why not? Why doesn't the Torah give us the backstory of Avraham? Where was he born? What was his childhood like? The story of being thrown in the Kivshan Ha'esh, thrown in the fiery furnace, and the miracle of surviving. The Medrash we know about breaking his father's idols and uh, sticking the, the hammer in the hand of the one idol when his father returned from lunch and he said, who did this? He said, what do you mean that idol? It's ridiculous, it's a piece of stone, he can't break the other idols. And Avram said, surely if it's ridiculous that he could break the other idols, then why are you worshipping him? Why are you worshipping it? Why aren't these stories incorporated into Torah? Why does the Torah begin rather abruptly? I submit that to you for your careful consideration. But in any case, Parsha begins, Vayom HaShem al-Avram, it's before his name is changed, before the letter He is added, Lech Lecha, go, the superfluous word there being, Lecha, what does Lecha mean in this context? Lech, Lecha, Me'artzacha, Me'moladetcha, Me'besavicha, leave everything you know, your homeland and so on, and go to the land I will show you. And God tells him, I'm going to bless you, you're going to become a great nation, everyone who blesses you will be blessed, everyone who curses you will be cursed. Who believes that? Not Jews, unfortunately. Evangelicals believe that. Mm-hmm. I sat in a panel at APAC a few years ago at the policy conference. I spoke in a breakout session on a panel with an evangelical who was talking about his loyalty to the state of Israel and where it comes from. And he quoted this Pasuk. So Jews doubt it. We're very insecure about it, defensive about it. We doubt it. Um, but there are, there is at least a segment of the non-Jewish world, evangelicals in particular, who believe it. Those who bless you will be blessed. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. 
And through you, people will find blessing. So if they want to find blessing, they have to attach themselves in a positive sense to the Jewish people. Avram takes his wife and his nephew and all of their property and the nefesh asher asu b'charan. How do you make a nefesh? Did Avram build a golem? What does it mean, the nefesh that he made in Haran? Avram was the very first outreach professional. Avram and Sarah. Avram and Sarah partnered. They had an outreach uh, program in Haran, this metropolis where his father got stuck. But Avram was able to move from there in his time in Haran when his father uh, supposedly was taking a break but ultimately became stuck. Avram used the opportunity to stand on his soapbox and preach about ethical monotheism. Preach in a world that was selfish about selflessness. In a world that was pagan about monotheism in a world that was about temptation and desire, about ethics and, and morality. Thanks, Deanna. Welcome. So, I'm not is here. So, uh, yeah, the scarves outside, if you're cold. So, um, so Avram used his time in Haran, and these nefesh asher these souls that they made, right, until then they weren't souls. They were soulless people. They introduced people to their soul and nourished their soul and nurtured their soul and then took those people with them. And they headed out in fulfillment of the pursuit of God's promise. Go to the land, I will tell you, and you'll be blessed there. And then what happens, there's a famine in the land, they go down to Mitzrayim, the famine is great, Avram is fearful that the Egyptians will violate Sarah, and so he tells her, I've got a plan, tell them you're my sister, they'll be good to me on your account. You're so... Um, or I shouldn't say violating her. He was afraid they'd violate him. But if, if he said that she's my wife, they would kill him in order to have access to her. So Avram says, I can leverage this in my favor. Not only will they not kill me to get you, but they will reward me because they will want to get to you. They'll think that you're so beautiful. So he says, uh, you know, participate, go along with me, and they'll reward me. The Ramban is critical of Avram for doing this. Again, there's a whole discussion we can have. We've had it in the past at length about are we entitled, do we have license to criticize the Avos and Nimahos? Are we entitled? Do we see the matriarchs and patriarchs as perfect, perfect, or near perfect, beyond reproach? Or do we read the stories as though they are human beings, relatable, and we're entitled to criticize? This is a very, very big discussion. We did a three-part series on it many years ago. And, uh, but here the Ramban, Nachmanides, is not afraid. He's not afraid to criticize Avram for having done this. They come to Mitzrayim, they see she's very beautiful, and in fact, they try to take her as a wife, but what happens, and they, they indeed spoil Avram with great wealth, but what happens, uh, Paro suffers, Nigoim. Paro, God gives him a plague, because Sarah's a married woman. Today's Dafyomi. You're not allowed to, of course, it's one of the worst uh, forms of, of arias, of promiscuity, of illicit relations, a married woman. It's, it's interesting, if anybody saw that the... Uh, President Clinton's archives were released a few weeks ago, um, revealing a number of the papers. And one of the papers that was revealed, so an article about this, his lawyers tried to, in, in, in arguing on his behalf during his whole scandal, his lawyers invoked Jewish law and said, it's only adultery if the woman is married. Mm-hmm. Ashes ish. 
Now, why why the rule for a non-Jewish president should follow Jewish law? Why the lawyer? Why the lawyer? Because it was a Jewish lawyer. But isn't it fascinating? It actually referenced Jewish law and said Jewish law it only constitutes adultery according to Jewish law if the woman is married. Ish is ish. So here Sarah is married. Paro is inappropriately propositioning or his uh, subjects, and uh, therefore he's, he's struck with Nagayim. So Paro calls Avram and says, What is this? What did you do to me? Why didn't you tell me she's your wife? Paro is smart enough to deduce on his own what's going on. So uh, Avram ends up uh, surviving. They send Avram away, and Avram leaves Egypt with great wealth. Avram Kaved Ma'od, Mekneba Kesef, Uva Zahav. He leaves with great wealth, and in Perak. 13, chapter 13, that's what we're going to study in depth in a moment. Avram then ascends, returns to the land of Israel with his nephew Lot. They now have great wealth. What happens when often when you have great wealth? <clears throat> the wealth corrupts. The wealth distorts your judgment. The wealth introduces conflict. There are families that are broken. People don't talk to each other for generations. And what was the source of their fighting? An inheritance, money, the sale of a business. Mm. Often wealth has the ability to create tremendous rifts in family such that in retrospect the family would have been much more blessed had they never had the wealth than having the wealth which tears apart the family. And that's what happens between Avraham and Lot. We'll study this more in depth in a moment where they go their separate ways. What does one do? How does one coexist in such a scenario? Yes? It's an expression where there's a will, there's a court case. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a court case. Nice. Okay, never heard that. Never heard that. In the next section, we see Avram's leadership. Yeah, we see Avram's leadership uh, capability. That he has tremendous courage in um, in in intervening in the war between the kings, the four kings and the five kings, um, and uh, trying to step in. Sodom is defeated. His nephew Lot is captured, and Avram intercedes. The same Lot that he just sent on his own way because they can no longer, uh, so to say, coexist. Now he intercedes on behalf of his, of his nephew Lot and saves him. And while Malki Tzedek, Melech Shalem, first reference in the Torah to where? Who's, what's Melech Shalem? Yerushalayim. Melech Shalem. Shalem is Yerushalayim. So Malki Tzedek. We always find that the king of Yerushalayim has Tzedek in their name. Malki Tzedek. Malki Tzedek wasn't his name. That's like the name Paro. Paro is not a name. It's like president. It's like prime minister. It's, like, it's a title. It's Malki Tzedek. Yushalayim is the city of Tzedek. It's the city of righteousness. And he tries to, yeah, he tries to send uh, Avram away with uh, great wealth. And Avram refuses it. Avram refuses the honor. I'm not going to take so much as a shoe strap or anything. And for that, Avram is rewarded handsomely by the Almighty. Kosh reassures Avram. Um, about the, uh, his legacy, about his continuity. Thus will be your offspring, or the word ko. The Medrash sees this word ko, chafhei. We spoke about this in the Shul's 25th anniversary. Chafhei is 25. But ko We see this word ko a number of times in Tanakh. Ko captures the promise of the future, the continuity of the Jewish people. So when you see that word ko, you see this word ko often, and you can see a running theme throughout when that word is invoked. We have the Brisbane Absarim, the covenant between Avram and Hashem, or Hashem and Avram, the promise of inheriting the land, of building a people, and, uh, and so on.
but that that promise will be a journey that's not linear, it's not in a straight line, but that journey is going to be jagged. It's going to have ups and downs, including a major detour to Mitzrayim. So it's already predicted before the very birth of our nation, our experience, our servitude in Egypt is already predicted and promised. Why that is, why we needed to go through an Egyptian culture or lifestyle before we could emerge to form our own, maybe we'll get to. Then uh, Sarah does something amazingly courageous, page 70. Sarah is suffering from infertility, of which the rabbis already described among the worst pain anyone, particularly a woman, can suffer is the challenge of not, uh, of not getting pregnant, of not having children. Women feel that their body's design, their design, their purpose is to be the medium of continuity and the inability to do so is a great source of suffering for which we should, we should daven that no one suffer and help people in whatever way that we can. So Sarah does something unbelievable. She has a co- co-wife. What's a co-wife called in Hebrew? A tzara. If you're learning the dafyomi, yivamos, that's what it's all about. We're in the second paragraph, yivamos, you can't get one amud, one line, without talking about tzaros. Why is a co-wife called a tzara? Because for a woman to share the attention or to partner with another co-wife is a source of tzar. It's a great source of pain. She's a tzara. She's a source of tzaros. What does Sarah do? Most women would push away the idea of a co-wife and Sarah brings her in. For whatever reason, God is preventing me right now from having a child, from conceiving. Come now to my maidservant. Perhaps I will. What does Ibane mean? I will be built through her. Rashi tells us, What do you see from here? How do you say children in Hebrew? Banim. And where does the word banim come from? Binyan. The way that you build a future, the way that you build your life, is through children. That banim and binyan are interchangeable. Children are the binyan. In order for a building to be strong, what does it need? Strong foundation. Our children to be strong, they need to come from a good foundation. The metaphor you can... We spoke the last couple of weeks, we did a two-part shear on uh, the Jewish view of corporal punishment, of spanking, sponsored by Adrian Peterson in the NFL. So the, um, the, we quoted Revolbe has a wonderful sefer, a very short book called Zuria Ubinyan, called Planting and Building, where he describes that the Jewish view to parenting parallels aspects of planting and parallels aspects of building. Our children, on the one hand, are a building, and on the other hand, they're like vegetation, like something that you plant. And he describes, you know, when you plant something, so now you've empowered it to continue to grow, but it can grow wild, as opposed to a building which has very fixed plans and designs. And each one has pros and cons, so it's the combination of the two. The Jewish view is planting and building. And he, he uh, describes this notion that children, banim, are binyanim. They are buildings. They need a strong foundation, they need rules and limits. They need details and designs and so on. But you see that from here. When Sarah is willing to bring in Hagar in order to ulai banemi mena. Maybe I can achieve the goal of banim, which is binyan, through her. Through her. And by the way, we see that that's true. Because 
uh, the Torah in a number of places says, if you teach someone else children, it's as if you gave birth to them. If you give them a spiritual building, a strong spiritual foundation, they become your children. So the concept of children is certainly a biological concept, a genetic concept, but in Judaism the concept of children transcends genetics and biology, but really children means those whom we've influenced, inspired, molded, shaped, the buildings we've created, the foundations that we've, that we've strengthened, even beyond. Okay? So that's the story. Sarah, uh, Shifcha. Hagar indeed becomes, uh, conceives through Avram, as Yishmael. Here the Torah makes an incredible promise. We've studied this in the past. It's a prediction of what Yishmael and his descendants will be like. This is not a class in political science, so we will not make an editorial comment about the fulfillment of this prophecy. But what does the Torah promise that Yishmael and his descendants will be like? He will be a wild, wild, be a wild person. His hand will be in everything, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will dwell against all of his brothers. Populate the world and trying to take over. He'll be fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. He will fight and be violent and try to force his way upon you. Torah promises exactly what's going to happen. Was a mistake in the end. Can we look back now? Yes. Did God speak to Israel and say, Take Hagar and let her be with Abraham? Did she make the wrong decision? In the end, he's never referred to Ishmael as his son, ever. Uh-huh. It just gave the whole world a source. Well, we know Avram loves Ishmael. We know that. How do we know that? Because when it's time for the Akedah, Hashem has to say, Take your son, your only son, the one you love. Why does it have to say, take your son? Because it could have been the, one, the only son. Each one was the only son to that mother, the one you love. Avram says, I love them both. That's when Avram got us to say, Ez Yitzchak. Okay, fine. Yitzchak. Kachnas bincha, your son. Well, I have two sons. Yechidcha. I have two only sons, each the only son to their mother. Asher Ahavta, I love them both equally. Fine, says God, it's Yitzchak, I'll tell you who it is. So what do you see from there? That Avram loved both sons equally. Now was it a mistake in retrospect? It's hard to know. I mean, you know, when you bring that child into the world, it's hard to know whether they're going to cure cancer or destroy the world. Fly planes into a building, it's, it's hard to know. In retrospect, would the world be better if Yishmael had not been born? Perhaps. But, but the Medrash says, why, what's the source of Yishmael's power? There's only two people who have God's name in it. Yishmael, Yisrael. Yishmael and Yisrael. And Yishmael listened to God. Rabbi Frand, the Tshuva Russia that he gave, literally a week, two weeks after 9-11. You can listen to it online. It's worth getting it. And he describes the power of Yishmael. Their notion of praying five times a day, how seriously they take it. He, he describes that Yishmael's power is not because they deny God. It's not because they abandon God. It's because of their passion. Now it's misdirected. It's misguided. It's misguided terribly. But, it, but we can extract from it at least the idea of having that level of loyalty and fidelity and passion and commitment and so on. And where does that come from? God's name is in their name, Yishmael. Yishmael and Yisrael, these are these two, the two nations that live side by side and both have God in their name. Okay, we're, we're, the introduction is going to finish the whole class. So let's just finish up. And then we have the bris, new names and a new destiny, bris mila, and the promise to Sarai. Her name becomes Sarah. Birachti osa, 
She's going to have her own child. Here is the prediction that she's going to have her own child. Okay, that's the end of this parsha. So let's go back now and look at the Pesukim. I want to investigate together. And I would like to look at together uh, Perak Yud Gimel. Perak Yud Gimel. Chapter 13. Perak Yud Gimel. Perak Yud Gimel is the story of Avram and Lot. When Avram achieves and amasses great wealth in Mitzrayim and he now returns to Israel and brings with him uh, this wealth, it corrupts Lot. It doesn't corrupt Avram. How do you know it doesn't corrupt Avram? We'll see in a moment. Avram ascends from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he has, and Lot Imo is with him, Hanegba. And they're heading towards the Negev. The Avram Kaved Ma'od, Avram is very heavy. It's not a description of like Motayantif. So that doesn't mean he gained a lot of weight. It means that he was very wealthy. Kaved, like Kavod. Kaved means heavy. Weighty was, is uh, honor. Kaved means heavy. It means honor, like Kavod. He had wealth. He was well diversified. He had livestock. He had silver. And he had gold. And he goes on his journey from the Negev to Beit El. Right? He travels on his journey from the south until Beit El. Back to the place where his tent was to begin with. Between Beit El and Ai. And Avram went back to the place where the altar had been made and he called there in the name of Hashem. Let's see Rashi. Let's see Rashi. When he left Egypt to come to Canaan, Avram traveled down to Egypt. What was his status when he traveled to Egypt? Was he a wealthy man? No, he was terribly poor. And he stayed in Achsanya. He found a bed and breakfast. He stayed at the modest motel on his way down to Egypt. Because he could afford nothing more. He went on Hotels.com and whatever was the cheapest hotel, that's where he stayed. Now he's returning from Egypt, a very wealthy man. Where did he stay? The Ritz, the Four Seasons? He stayed at the same hotel. Avram stayed at the same hotel on the way back that he stayed on the way down. What do you see from here? What do you see from here? Did the money change Avram? The wealth did not influence Avram. He was the same Avram after the wealth as he was before the wealth. He had the wealth, he enjoyed the wealth, but essentially he was the same person. And of course, this is in great contrast to Lot, who became a different person. Spoiled his expectations, his sense of entitlement, his pursuit of honor, his greed. It had a huge impact on Lot, while Avram, Avram remained unchanged. Avram remained unchanged. Continuing. So what happens? Pasukei. Pasukei. By the way, what does Avram do when he has the wealth? What's the first place he goes to? The Mizbeach. Like Rabbi Hashem. Calls out in Hashem's name. 
gratitude. You achieve wealth. You're just going to go back to life. You win the lottery. You get the contract. You have a good business deal. You're just going to go on with your life. You don't pause to thank Hashem. He stopped at the Mizbeach on the way, not coincidentally. Pasakei. And also Lot Haulech Es Avram. Translate those words. Also Lot who went with Avram. It's kind of a funny formulation. Lot who went with Avram also had Tzon Ubakar Ve'olim. He also had wealth. Why does it have this funny formulation? Haulech Es Avram. Says Rashi. Migaram Shehayalau. Where did Lot get this wealth from? Was it on his own behalf, in his own merit? His great investment strategy? No, Zos Halichasoim Avram. It was because he attached himself to Avram that by, he also got shares, you know, in the IPO. He also invested wisely. Avram took care of him also when he made the real estate deals. Avram, his wealth was entirely as a result of, of Avram. So what happens? Pasuk Vav. What happens? What happens? The land did not bear them. The land did not allow them to dwell together. They had so many possessions, such wealth, they could not. They simply could not be together. Now, what does it mean? The land could not bear them to be together. What's interesting here? The land couldn't bear them to be together. So Rashi understands. What does it mean? Where was the source of their wealth? In those days, your portfolio was not necessarily real estate, stocks and bonds and CDs. What was your portfolio? Livestock. Not stock, but livestock. Think about those words. Livestock. So what was, how did you nurture your investment? If it was livestock, you needed them to be able to graze. And to graze, you needed land. And there wasn't enough land. That's what Rashi says it means. There wasn't enough land. They both had so much livestock that needed land to graze. And there simply wasn't enough there wasn't enough land. I don't know. Right. Right. Okay, could be, but it seems Rashi interprets it. There wasn't enough fertile land, land, grass, but the land was the problem. There wasn't enough geography to go around. This space is not big enough for both of us, right? So what happens? A fight breaks out. Now is the fight between Avram and Lot? It's between their shepherds. There's conflict, there's strife, there's tension. And there are other people in the land at the time. So what? What's the relevance of that? What's the relevance of that? Now Riv, there's a fight. What's this fight? What's the source of the fight? Rashi says, so the problem is that there wasn't a shortage of land. The, the tension, the conflict arose out of the usage of the land. What happens? Avram's shepherds see load shepherds who are allowing their animals to graze on other people's property. So Avram's shepherds are saying, Hey buddies, hey guys, what you doing? Your owner's sheep are eating someone else's grass. That's called stealing. So what was Lot's shepherd's answers? They didn't say mind your own business. They had an actual legal answer. They said, look, your master Avram was just promised by God he's going to inherit the land. This whole land is his. And Avram has no children at this point. 
So who's destined to inherit Avram? Lot. Lot. So this is already as if Lot's land. So mind your own business. Get lost. Because this is Lot's land. Why does the pus? That's why the pasuk says, according to Rashi, answers our question. Why is the Torah telling us that, that these other foreign people dwelled in the land to say that Avram had not yet taken possession? These other people lived there, so that argument, their legal argument, was flawed. You can't say the whole land belongs to Avram and Lot's destined to inherit from Avram, and therefore there's nothing wrong with his sheep grazing on someone else's property. For, Who, who used that argument? He did not. He's the one who wanted to pay. Ephraim and Achiti said, you take it for free, and Avram insisted on paying. He didn't use that argument. He didn't use the argument. Psukim say, Avram insisted on paying. Avram was not going to use his, his right. Avram insisted on paying to Ephron. Here, Lot's, the, the argument's flawed. Even if, even if we're, they're, the Canaanite and Prezi were not in the land, the argument's flawed. Because, what, am I entitled to go take my father's things because one day I'm, doing, I'm, I'm destined to inherit him? Until I inherit him, they're not mine. <laughs> so the argument was flawed to begin with. But it was certainly flawed by the mere presence of the Kananiv Aprizi as Ba'aretz. The Sforno also says, HaKananiv Aprizi as Yoshev Ba'aretz, L'chein ha-yaharid b'chnei achim gerim mibi'ish z'richam b'nei ha-toshavim ki b'yos m'riva b'nei achim ha-garim y'achshivu osam ha-toshavim l'anshei riv What's going to happen? It's going to precipitate hatred among the other people who live, who dwell in the land. In fact, so, so what exactly are they fighting about? First Rashi makes it sound like there's not enough land. Then Rashi tells us they're having a fight over, don't tell me what to do. Avram's shepherds tell Lot's shepherds, you can't allow the animals to graze in land that doesn't belong to them. And Lot's shepherds say, mind your own business, it does belong to our master because it belongs to your master and Lot's going to inherit going to inherit him. The, um, the Rav, Rabbi Salavechik, they came out with the Rav Chumash. In the Rav Chumash he says, No feud, let alone one between people of, a higher, cal- of higher caliber like Avram and Lot, is precipitated by a mere shortage of pasture. After all, each had money. They could have brought more, bought more land. Surely there was enough for sale. The trouble was that Avram and Lot could not dwell together spiritually. Avram and Lot did not have their old mutual respect and appreciation. The harmony was somehow affected in Egypt. Lot now had different ideas and different dreams. The issue here was not room for pasture. The issue here was not wealth. The issue here was different value system. There were conflict, conflicting cultures, conflicting values. Um, and he continues the rough. If the shepherds had already noticed the tension and were starting to quarrel, then everyone in Canaan would soon know that Avram and Lot were at loggerheads. If the feud would be exposed, then Avram would have to debate Lot in the open. Avram would preach righteousness and justice, while Lot would preach something else. Avram would preach faith in one God, while Lot would preach idolatry. Avram did not want to further publicize the rift between Lot and himself in this manner, and thus suggested that they part, that they part company. So the Rav is less sure about the land being the source of their conflict. The conflict is a values conflict. It's a conflict of culture. It's a conflict of beliefs. Lot was corrupted by the money, the pursuit of the money. And Avram says our lifestyles are no longer in sync. Our lifestyles are no longer in sync. It's going to come to a head. The Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, has a different insight. And he says, you know what the problem was? Writes the Nitziv, Ira Maisa Shaya Lecherpa V'chil Lashem 
Shayriv bin Haroim. You know what the problem was? Why was Avram concerned? We didn't read the rest of the Psukim. Let's keep reading. We'll come back in a moment. Let there not be strife between us, or between our shepherds. We're all brothers. The whole land's in front of you. Separate from me. You want to go to the left? I'll go to the right. Avram says, I could care which, what I get. I just, we can't be together anymore. So I'll take whatever you don't take. Very noble of Avram. Lot lifts his eyes. He sees the Jordan Valley is all very fertile. So it's before God had destroyed Stom and Amorah. It looked like Kigan Hashem. It reminded him Kigan Hashem. Like Mitzrayim. It reminded Lot of Mitzrayim. So remember, just like the detour the Jewish people will take on their way to the Promised Land, they had to go through Mitzrayim, 210 years of slavery, promised at the end of the Parsha Brisbane Absarim. Avram, before he really took possession of the Promised Land, took a detour by going where? To Mitzrayim. Avram emerges from Mitzrayim unscathed, but Lot does not. Lot brings Mitzrayim back with him to Israel. How do you know that? Because when he is given the choice of where to dwell in Israel, he chooses an area, Ki'aretz Mitzrayim. He wants to be as if he's back in, Israel, in Egypt. And what makes someone as if they're back in Egypt when they choose what area? Yardane, the Jordan. Why is the Jordan? Oh, we'll get back to that. Lot chooses the Jordan Valley and he goes to the east. And they separate. Avram Yashab Eretz Kenan, Velot Yashab Arakikar. They separate in two separate places. Vayal Adzadam. Ba'anche Stom Ra'im Vachatayim. The people of Stom are very wicked. Lashem Ma'od. To God, they are terribly wicked. Okay? And then we, the story now continues. Then God tells Avram, now that you're separated from Lot, look around. I'm promising you this whole land. Okay. We'll see if we have time to get to that. We'll come back to that. So come back to what was the fight? Rashi says, land. Either there wasn't enough land for all the animals to graze, or there was enough land, but nevertheless, Lot's shepherds were encouraging or allowing the animals to graze on land that didn't belong to them, as if stealing. The Rav said, no, the fight was a culture clash. It was a fight of values. The Rav, Rav writes further, how is it described? When Avram confronts Lot directly, he says, let there not be a miriva. What's miriva? Said the Rav. Hatred, resentment, complete alienation. The shepherds had nothing to quarrel about. It was an argument that reflected the, dis- the, disharmonious, the disharmonious relationship between their masters. The shepherds felt that something had changed between Avram and Lot. Avram understood that if they continued to dwell and journey together, they would ultimately become enemies. You know, sometimes at the root of a fight, there's no fight. In other words, at the root of the fight is not an issue, per se, Sometimes at the root of the fight is not a disagreement about money or decision-making or a contract or business, but rather it's, it's a manufactured fight. It's a manufactured fight because it's such a different way. So that's what's going on here, says the Rav. Miriva means a manufactured fight. Avram sees that Lot and he have different values, different lifestyles, and he therefore is proactive. Before we come to a massive fight, let's go separate ways and divide now, before the fight comes. It's also another lesson to learn from here. 
Sometimes don't wait until it's too late because the fight occurred, but anticipate the fight. Anticipate the different ways that you see things and dissolve the relationship before the fight comes. So back to the Nitziv. Rashi, so the Rav, the Nitziv. Yes? No. Because Avram said to Lot, you choose wherever you want to go. Lot chose it. Not necessarily Lot might have risen to the occasion. Lot chose his own destiny. He's responsible for his own choice. Avram bails him out. He rescues him. But Lot was responsible for his own choice. Then Nitziv gives another answer. What are they fighting about? Nitziv says, you know what they're fighting about? Or you know why, why Avram wanted to avoid the fight? Chil Hashem. Shayariv bin Haroim. When Avram sees that the shepherds are fighting, and, vac- and this explains for the Nitziv why it says, Akraniva prizi az ba'aretz. That there's other people who live there. What's the result? It's a terrible chil Hashem. It's a chil Hashem. V'tanya b'sifri parshas kiseitzei ki yariv bein anashim. In ben hakosa rasha, in shalom yotzei mitoch meriva. Mi garam lalot lefrosh menatzadek haviyomer zum meriva. Amdu shnei anashim mi garam lazel lalakos haviyomer zum meriva. Perish chazal, de ben hakosa rasha, higia avur hariv. Shadivar kashos kol kach ad shesbonenu hashoftim shroi lalakos. V'chein ha'inyan lalot, shiyatu dvar mi piyaroim she'inam kedai l'shaman. So the Nitziv explains the whole issue here is the Chil Hashem which will result as we spoke about in Shabbat Shuvah. Our lives should be dedicated to creating Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, helping His reputation, being someone's angel today. When the opposite transpires, when a Chil Hashem, a vacuum, a hole is created where God is driven out, we're violating our entire purpose in creation, our essence, why we're here. Avram is the originator. We studied in Shabbat Shuvah that Rambam, that Avram began a nation and a national call for Kiddush Hashem. That is the whole purpose of the Jewish people, to create a club, to create a campaign, to try to help God's reputation in the world. So that's Avram's whole being. That's his whole essence. How can I help someone today? What guest can I host today? For whom can I do chesed today? How can I be someone's angel? Because when they know that I believe in one God, and look how I've improved and enriched their lives, what are they going to do? They'll want to know more about my one God. They're going to study my one God. Avram's whole essence is to create a national mission and campaign of Kiddush Hashem. So now he sees his shepherds fighting with Lot's shepherd. There's other people around. What does he say? Forget about it. You guys have to go two separate ways. You're undermining the whole goal, the whole mission. You're a distraction from the mission. The mission is Kiddush Hashem and you're undoing it by creating a Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem is horrific. Again, we studied this at length on Shabbat Shuvah, but Chil Hashem is the one uh, indiscretion, mistake, for which we can't achieve kapara. Tshuva is not enough. Yom Kippur is not enough. Only Misa Mechaperas. Death atones for Chil Hashem. We have to be so careful from creating Chil Hashem, it undermines, it undermines our very mission. And, and this... Again, we studied on Shabbat Shuvah, but this has a huge impact in the area of halacha. The Noda Yehuda, Rabbi Yechezka was asked a shayla regarding a certain area of kashras. It's in Yerodeya Chelik Bey's Simachav So the Noda Yehuda is asked a shayla, and uh, he's called upon by the questioner to adopt a certain stringency. And 
the questioner in the context of pressuring the Nodah Behuda to adopt the stringency, the pressurer writes, the uh, questioner writes, basically, look at the Chil Hashem, the one whose lenient is causing by adopting or following the leniency. And you know what the Nodah Behuda writes back? Listen to this. The fact that you're having a fight with somebody else is not worthy of response. I don't know that person if he's creating conflict by rejecting and marginalizing and judging others. I don't want to know him, says another Behuda. And in fact, I'll defend the person with the leniency. Why? He says, You're worried that his leniency is going to create the Chil Hashem? You know what creates the bigger Chil Hashem, says the Nadab Yehuda? Your conflict, your, your Riv. Same word as our Parsha. This tension, this fight, this judgment, this marginalizing. We set the Jewish people back when the non-Jews of the world and other Jews of the world perceive us as just fighting. We're filled with such tension and conflict, marginalizing one another, enmity for one another. When that happens, it creates a chil Hashem. says the Yudbi the chil Hashem that results from your having a halachic fight and judging and dismissing someone else is much greater than whatever Chil Hashem you think is happening from the leniency that he's adopted. So says the Nitziv, what is the motivator for Avram to distance himself from Lot? The biggest issue is not necessarily Gezel or the value, con- it's a Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem is the antithesis of everything that we're supposed to accomplish. It sets back and undermines and reverses the mission. And Avram is the mission. Avram's the father, literally, of our mission. He gives birth to the Mamlachas Kohanim Begoy Kadosh, whose mission is to be the Kohanim, is to further advance Hashem's name. Okay? That's the Nitziv, and that is the Rav. So now Avram gives Lot choice. Avram gives Lot a choice. By the way, it's interesting. Avram says, Let there not be a fight between us. Was there a fight between them? No, the only fight was between the... <coughs> Why do you say that? Look at the Orachayim HaKadosh. Says the Orachayim. Tam Omra Because if we don't cut it off now, then the fight in the end will be between us. We'll say, Why? Why are you making me go a separate way? It's just the shepherds that are fighting. It's not going to escalate to us. You're my master. You're my uncle Avram. The Orachim says you see a principle here. When each side digs their heels in, you're going to, it will escalate until it becomes a fight between you. So Avram was using Chachamein of Barosho. A wise person has foresight. Avram was using foresight. Some of the time, the best ways to resolve a conflict is not to get into it to begin with identify the likely conflict that's going to arise, that's going to escalate, and avoid it to begin with. Avram sees the direction they're heading because of the shepherds 
of Lot, of his shepherds and Lot. So he cuts it off before it even begins, before it even escalates. Okay. Because it wasn't a fundamentally an issue with the shepherds. It was a fundamentally an issue with separate values. That's what the Rav was saying. They had two worldviews, and their worldviews were now clashing. And when your worldviews clash, there's not enough room to live together. So Avram does the... He takes the high road. He says, you choose where you want to go. And why? Anashim Achim. Avram describes that we are brothers. Look at Rashi. Krovim. We're related. The Medrash tells us that Lot and Avraham had a similar appearance. They looked alike. Often a nephew and an uncle can look alike. Why is that important? Where does Rashi know that from? So the Sif Seichacham tells us, Why did Avram say we have to separate? Because we look so alike, when people see you with your shepherds who are stealing, they're going to think it's me. And that's why we have to separate. Yeah, but still, they look alike. Danny Tega and his father look like brothers. They look alike. Sometimes even with the age difference. Hami, I mean, you don't look a day older than me. Uh, <laughs> I hope to look I hope to look as good as you at your age. Mirza Shambli Ayanhara. So the uh, Avram turns to Lot and he says, Your choice, your call. I know that we have to separate. Right? This is the fair thing. I'm saying we have to separate, you get to choose. You know, they say like when you when you uh, when you divide, one person cuts and the other person chooses. That way the one who cuts will try to make it as equal as possible because the other person's choosing. Avram says, I know that we have to divide, but I don't want to make it look like I'm taking the good for myself. So we have to divide. You take, you get first call. You get first crack. You want to go to the left? You want to go to the left? I'll go to the right. You want to go to the right? I'll go to the left. And what does Lot choose? What does Lot choose? Lot chooses actually neither. Lot chooses neither. Rabbi Menachem Liebteg has a wonderful article, not here but later, where he basically uh, describes this. He says Avram was, you have to picture where Avram was standing when he tells him to choose. Is Avram facing north-south or east-west? When he says you go left and I'll go right. Or you go right and I'll go left. Is north-south or east-west? So, Rabbi Liebteg suggests that Avram is facing, um, he's facing west, and he says north-south, and, and Lot doesn't listen. Lot chooses neither option. Instead, he goes to the Jordan Valley, which is designed just like Egypt. And why is Lot drawn to the Jordan Valley, we started talking about? What's so special about it being fertile? It has the Jordan River. And why does he care that it's fertile? What does he not need to depend on if he has a river that can fertilize and that can provide? He does not need rain. And what? And if he doesn't need rain, whom does he never need to turn to? Hashem. So what does the Torah tell us? That he goes, Mikedem. Look at Pasuk Yedalaf. And he chooses the Jordan Valley and he goes Mikedem. He travels Mikedem. What does Mikedem mean? <coughs> From the east. From the east. Rashi says, What do you mean, Mikedem? Nasa me'etzel Avram, 
He went from the east of Avram to the west. Geographically. He went from the east to the west. Which doesn't make much sense if the Jordan Valley is in the east. So Medrash Agada interprets it differently. What does it mean? He traveled Mikadem. Whenever you see that term Kedem, Kedem means the east. Kedem also means the old. Right? Hashiveno, what do we say? Renew our days, Kikedem. Kikedem means like days of old. But it could also mean, as the Medrashir interprets it, Kadmono Shal Olam. So, who's Kadmono Shal Olam? The Ebeshter, the Ribono Shal Olam, the creator of the world, is the oldest. Kadmono Shal Olam. The, the, the one who started it all is the Kadmono Shal Olam. So, when it says Lot went Mikedem, it means Lot went from Hashem. He was running away from Hashem. How does Rashi know this? He was running away from Hashem because of the choice that Lod made. Lod made the choice of Mitzrayim. And what is Mitzrayim? Go back to the Rashi's in Pasuk Yud. Kigan Hashem. Why did he choose the Jordan Valley? Because it was Kigan Hashem, which means Le'ilanos, like trees. Ke'eretz Mitzrayim, Lizrayim. What do trees not need? But they don't need rain. Vegetables, the vegetation. Ke'eretz Mitzrayim Lizrayim. So why is he choosing Mitzrayim? Because Mitzrayim is the symbol of natural resource. Israel is a dry land. Israel is a land that relies inc- extraordinarily on rainfall. Why is that? God says, how do I develop a relationship with people who live in a land? By making them dependent on rain. When they'll need rain, they'll turn to me. When they receive rain, they'll be grateful f- to me. The relationship with rain is essentially a relationship to Hashem. Natural resource without needing rain is the ability to erase God, to distance God, to go mikadmono shel olam. Egypt has the Nile. Egypt has, which, which is the great um, irrigator. And therefore, it's unnecessary to have a relationship with God. That's what it means in Egypt. Who was the deity? Paro. Not coincidentally, where did Paro go to relieve himself in the morning so no one would know he's not a deity? The Nile. Because Paro's power came, they worshipped Paro in the sense that he ruled the Nile. And the Nile was the God because the Nile provided everything they needed. And they didn't need real God, the authentic God, the true God. Israel is the antithesis of Egypt. Israel is the place where you don't have a natural resource, you don't, you don't worship the, the river, you rely on God for the rain without which you have nothing and you cannot survive. So Avram is drawn where to Israel, the relationship with Hashem. Lot is drawn the easy way out. Who wants to work on a relationship with God? Who wants to have to daven? Who wants to have to have merits when you can go to Egypt and draw natural resources having nothing to do with your virtue or righteousness, your merits, having nothing to do with prayer or asking, not requiring gratitude or appreciation. That's what Egypt represents versus what Israel represents. And this comes up in a lot of halachic implications. right? Drawing upon Rabbi Liebteg's insight, Rav Yol Ben Nun's insight, my brother once gave a chabura here 
And he tried to apply this in a halachic application. Fruit is seasonal, depends on rain. Vegetables are like grass. They can be cultivated at any time, given a water source like the Nile. And you see this difference in halacha between fruit and vegetables. First of all, for example, the Ritva in Rosh Hashanah says that there's a Havamina that there's a Rosh Hashanah for vegetables they don't, that they, they don't really have a season. The question of whether Meiser applies. Meiser is a machlokas, is daraisa, darabanan, other than tirosh v'yitzar, but there's a, the Ritva has an opinion in Rosh Hashanah that there's a difference between vegetables and fruit when it comes to whether Meiser is daraisa or darabanan, biblical or rabbinic. Right? If fruit are chayev and trumas and maestros from the Torah, everybody agrees that vegetables are definitely derabanan. Everybody agrees vegetables are definitely derabanan. Again, what's the difference? Vegetables grow from the ground fruit and, 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 and can use natural irrigation. Fruit in the tree requires and relies on rain. My brother pointed out, when the Jewish people are in the desert and they get hungry and they complain to God, and they say, we miss, what do they miss about Egypt? The vegetables. They specifically start listing vegetables. Why do they miss vegetables? What they're saying they miss about Egypt is the natural resource. We don't want to have to earn. We don't want to have to pray. We don't want to have to rely on our merits. We want to be able to just go to the supermarket. We want natural resource. We want to just take what we want when we want it. We miss Mitzrayim. What you see, what I'm trying to communicate is that Mitzrayim, the notion of Egypt is much more than just a geographic location, but Egypt represents a philosophy and a way of life. Egypt represents erasing God from the equation. Egypt represents the ability to lead whatever life I want, whatever life I want, without having to answer to anybody. Egypt represents having everything provided for me without needing to pray or to earn it. So now you have to understand, it's not a... It was predetermined that we would go down to Egypt to experience their lifestyle in order to be able to contrast the life that we're supposed to live. That's the Brisbane of Sarim. God says you're going to go to Egypt before you can make it to Israel. You need to understand what you're not before you can understand what you are. Avram descends to Egypt before he really inhabits Israel. What are our Avos? Our Avos refuse to be buried in, in Egypt. They desperately do not want to be buried in Egypt. They don't want their legacy in perpetuity to be associated with and connected with Egypt. They see themselves as representing, as being part of Israel. So rain is the barometer of Yerushalayim. Egypt allows you to have no Yerushalayim because you don't need the rain. Rain is the measuring stick of how you measure Yerushalayim worthiness or a lack of or a lack of worthiness. So not only do we see that we had to go through Egypt before getting to Israel. We see Avram had to experience that as well. We see now in our parsha that Lot and Avram, when they have the conflict, where does Lot gravitate towards? Egypt. He wants that way of life. Given the choice, he doesn't want God. He doesn't want virtue. He doesn't want Yerushalayim. He wants Egypt. And Avram, while Avram wants Israel, and we have three psukim in the Torah that all prohibit us from going back to Egypt. There's a halacha. You're not allowed to live in Egypt. It's codified. Now, why don't we observe it? The Rambam lived in Egypt. The uh, Ravid lived in Egypt. The um, Ravavadya Yosef was a Dayan in Egypt. So that we studied together on Shabbos Hagadol a number of years ago. If anyone wants the source sheets, we have like a hundred sources. I'm happy to email them to you. Let me know. Um, 
but how is it halakhically okay that they went back to Egypt if indeed there is a prohibition? But now we can appreciate the nature of the prohibition is not just geographically to move back to Egypt, but it's not to adopt the philosophy of Egypt. It's not to imitate Lot, who went olam, who abandoned God and tried to live a hedonistic life without accountability at all. So that's what's going on in this conflict, in this fight. That's they go their separate ways. Even though Lot does abandon the path, in the next section, which we didn't study, when Lot gets in trouble, Avram nevertheless rises to the occasion in order to go rescue him. All right, let's stop here.